Thank you for listening to the podcasts from Life Central Church. For more information or to visit one of our locations, go to lifecentralchurch.org.uk. If we uh, haven't had the chance to meet yet, as Leon said, my name is Gareth. I'm part of the team around here. And whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, and if you're joining us online, I'm really glad you're here. Because as we're doing this summer series, Summer School, and talking about lessons to make sense of life, well, we've got a couple of things in common here. Well, we're all living a life, and um, we're all trying to make sense of it. So hopefully this is applicable for you. Hopefully this is going to be somewhat helpful. Um, What we're basing this series on is something called the Book of Proverbs. It's found in the Old Testament, and it's wisdom literature. And in short, that means there are texts within it that inform us of ways that we can live our lives, and it kind of inform us of ways that we can flourish, ways we can grow, ways we can kind of thrive. But it also warns us against ways in which we can kind of lead to destruction and things can go badly as well. Uh, but the, the key thing to note is these proverbs are based on probability, not on promises. And what I mean by that is it's highly probable that your peace, your joy, your contentment will increase as you put these things into practice. Your relationships will get better and thrive as you apply some of the wisdom we're exploring. Your work, your career, you'll see it grow and hopefully get better and you get good at your job or get a new job. I don't know. But it's not a promise because life is complex because life is nuanced and there's grey areas to it. But nevertheless, I am convinced, and we are as followers of Jesus, that there is truth. And there's, these are things that, if we apply to our lives, we can flourish and we can grow and we can see them change the trajectory of our lives. And to that end, today, um, a characteristic, unfortunately, that does result in a bit of maybe chaos or things that kind of aren't good happening into our lives, and I can be guilty of it as well. Let's put it this way. Have you ever had that moment, it's Christmas time, and there's one of the last Lindor chocolates in the box? And so a little selfishly, you don't really check with anybody else, but you claim it, and it's yours, and you enjoy it. Some people are like cheering, yes, Lindor. Um, Or perhaps you've got a new pair of shoes, and a little bit arrogantly, you're kind of flaunting them, like you're on a Parisian catwalk, and you're showing people at work, or maybe around town in Hales Owen, in the cornbow, that you've got some new trainers on. Or perhaps you defiantly kind of say no to your mum to cook her bacon and eggs when she asks you for brunch and you're making yourself some. Yes, I did do that. Sorry, mum. And when she asked me for some breakfast, I was like, no, but that is not a good thing that I did. But these aren't big issues, right? And we can brush them to the side and we can play them down. But if we're honest, it doesn't tend to stop there in those kind of behaviours. And they evolve. And it moves towards the refusal to say sorry to a friend that we've hurt with a harsh word and we tarnish it as banter. Or perhaps it's when we walk past that human being that is sat outside the supermarket asking for some change and we just ignore them. We don't look at them, we don't acknowledge them, we don't even say, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any change. Or perhaps it's that we force what we want on that family day out or the time with friends. You you see, the thing, the impulse that drives all of these behaviours is pride. It's pride. The dictionary defines pride as an exaggerated self-esteem. Exaggerated self-esteem. An inflated, overstated view of ourselves that does impact how we treat others. Synonyms include vanity, 
arrogance, ego. And as uncomfortable as it can make you and I feel to have a conversation and to explore the truth of these things in our lives, they can go unchecked and they are there and they are prevalent and we all experience it. And the proverb we're going to examine today pulls no punches in telling us the reality of pride in our lives. So Proverbs 16 to 18 puts it this way. That pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Haughty means to show oneself above others. You get the gist. Another version of the scriptures puts it this way. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. So notice that the author of our proverb here, the person who's writing this, is saying the same thing in two ways to really get our attention. They're saying that pride leads to destruction. That means that our ego, our unhealthy high view of ourselves, can cause damage to our relationships, to our careers, our places of work, to our own well-being. It doesn't do good for that. So If this is true, if it's probable that this is the case of how pride works in our lives, then how do you and I avoid this? I believe there is an antidote, and we're going to examine that today in our learning objective. So welcome back to school. And our learning objective is this, to describe humility. believe it is the antidote against pride. Describe humility and have the tools to live it out. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, one of the best definitions of humility, I believe. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Observe that C.S. Lewis here is not talking, um, sorry, he is talking about your focus, not your value. So he's he's saying it's not decreasing your self-worth or lowering your fundamental value as a human being, but it is increasing your focus on the value of others. It's a decrease in, it's it's not a decrease in our own self-worth, it's an increase in our focus on others. It is the growing characteristic of recognizing I am valuable and precious whilst choosing to increasingly do what elevates the value of another person. And so if pride leads to destruction, then could it be true that humility leads to construction? Is it true then that that which tears down, that which like hinders relationships and causes harm, what about if humility was to do the opposite? What about if we were to be people of humble status and that was to cause good things in our lives? So the real question is, how? How do we do this? How is this something that we can apply to our lives? How is this something that we can implement? We're going to have a read of a passage that's found in Philippians. If you've never heard of that before, it's a letter that's in the New Testament. And what is going on here, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. And in short, the author of this kind of text, there's a bit of text where he's writing a letter, and then there's a bit of poetry that he adds into it, is by a guy called Paul. Paul was previously hostile physically towards followers of Jesus in the first century. He attempted to wipe them out. He didn't like followers of Jesus. He had a problem with them. But then he has this supernatural encounter with God, with the risen Jesus, who questions him. And Paul turns around to be the most dominant voice in attesting to the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and writes to a bunch of kind of first century Christians to aid them in how to do that. 
She writes this letter to a group of people in a place called Philippi. He greets them and then he reflects on the fact that he's in prison for his faith and then he encourages them to build a life of humble service and that's where we're going to jump in at Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So it's a bit of a longer passage, so um, buckle in. I know we've got short attention spans in the modern century, but we're going to be great and there's a bit of poetry if you like that. Okay, so he says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here here comes our poetry about Jesus. Um, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is gonna be a little bit of a basis for what I wanna give to you, which is four tools to build humility. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you can apply this to your lives. I hope they would serve you well. And the first one is this, to know your motivation. Paul says to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So we're charged to behave in a way that isn't selfish. Seems obvious, right? But it's only possible if we increase in our own self-awareness of how we are behaving. But pride has this subtle way of kind of isolating us at times to how we behave or blinding us to some of the kind of moral compass we develop or even pride likes to help us to justify the wrong things we do to others. So how do you become aware? One way, I think, is to make a friend a mirror. Not saying turn them into inanimate objects that you hang up in your hallway. What I mean is, invite somebody into your life that you trust and love to help you to have reflective conversations, to help you to say, ah, this situation went really kind of square-shaped and it didn't go really, really well at all. So help me understand, was there something I might have done in this circumstance, in the way I handle myself, in the way I said? If you just decide to live your life alone in the kind of microcosm of your own thoughts and dealings, the chances are you're going to get caught up in pride I've been there, it doesn't help. So make a friend a mirror, invite somebody in to help you reflect on how you're doing in relationships, in work, in circumstances. Number two is to discover the interests of others. Paul says, doesn't he, to not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, don't miss him. He's not saying don't look after yourself when he says don't look to your own interests. We know we have to be in a a good position, a healthy position to serve others and care for others. 
but perhaps it means that we could find out what would make your children, your colleague, your friend feel really loved and cherished. And don't assume, ask. Maybe you could begin to pose a question to people that says, what can I do today to make you feel really loved and really cherished? In that way, you are looking to discover the interests of others. I'm not particularly good at this, and I've already got permission from my wife to say this, but I know, and I've known for a number of years since being married, that Sophie's love language is gifts, receiving gifts, yet I still don't buy her many, many, very, like many gifts. Um, so I've got to do better there. I know that's her interest. It's always because there's so much money. Um, no, they're not. That's true. Um, but I've got to do better there to recognise that's an interest of hers and also to ask her, in what ways, Sophie, can I make you feel loved today? That's what Paul's saying, to live... A humble life is to do that. But the thing is, when it comes to humility and to build these things into our life, it doesn't just happen by good intention. It doesn't just happen by good intention. So the third tool is to do it and then do it again. To do it and then do it again. The best intentions in the world still don't amount to action. So humility needs a habit. Humility needs a habit. A habit is defined this way. A settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. Could you imagine if we were people who found it hard to give up being humble? It might have a real impact on our places of work, on our family situations. Establishing a habit is really key. Again, best intentions don't get you that far and humility is truly formed in us in the regular service of others. So here's some suggestions. Perhaps you could add a daily reminder to a calendar about um, figuring out a way you could serve somebody. So it comes up every day and it's a question to yourself to say, who is there around me today that I could serve? Who could I make a cup of tea for in my place of work? Could I be the one that makes dinner tonight? Could I be the one that takes the dog for a walk? Maybe there's a daily thing you can do in order to serve other people. Perhaps there's more than that. Maybe you could agree to a weekly or monthly moment to host people in your home or take somebody out for coffee. Perhaps you can be intentional with saying, yeah, you know, actually hospitality is something we love to give. It's something we want to do to serve others. So maybe we could put that into our calendar. Again, it needs a habit in order for it to thrive. Or lastly, shameless plug, you could join the dream team. Perhaps you could say, you know what, I recognise that I want to commit to a regular time that works for your season of life, whatever that might be, but to say, I'm going to give of of what I've got, of what God has given me, of my strengths, the things I love to do, and I'm going to establish them in a routine and a rhythm of being part of the dream team that serve the the church and Hales Owen at large as well. So humility needs a habit. And the fourth tool that's really key, I think, in this is to be prepared to not be thanked. I don't like this one. Oh, there's a look at ooh in the room. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't like this one. This is hard. This is something that um, we find is if you're not a follower of Jesus, no expectation, no pressure. Uh, Jesus followers, listen up. If you're a follower of Jesus, he calls us that service of others is central to our lives. And it's central to our lives whether we are thanked or not. 
Jesus asks of us that we would choose others and his kingdom, people who need kind of help, but also those to be served above our own. There's a couple of passages here we're going to look at that says that he tells us to love our neighbour as ourselves. If you actually think about this, think about the care you might give to yourself, the way you think of yourself and kind of looking after yourself. To actually then apply that to somebody else, your, maybe your actual geographical neighbour, gosh, that would be a thing, right? I feel challenged by that. For us to interact with our neighbours, I don't know about you, but I've never been particularly good at that, but want to grow in, in loving my actual neighbour, not just the proverbial neighbour as myself. Jesus goes on to say as well in another place, whoever loses their life for me, and what he means by that is your own agenda, Whoever loses their own agenda for the one of Jesus and for the gospel, this good news about God loving humanity, will save it. He's saying, lose your life, essentially kind of find a way to serve others and you will find there is so much more to be gained in your service of other people. And lastly, a hard-hitting part of what Jesus has to say is, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. And slave in the first century is a different kind of language here. It doesn't mean somebody kind of against their own will. It was more of a kind of domestic thing where people were kind of welcomed in the home to service and it was a kind of a job as well and a vocation for them. But to serve and to need to be thanked is adding conditions to our service. Of course you want to be thanked, don't mishear me, it's really nice. You know when you're, oh, the worst more recently, you know when you're driving along like a lane and there's only ever space for one car and all you want is that other person to just do that little like hand on the wheel, you just want them to go as you let them past. But what if it was to not expect that that would be the case? It seems really small, but to add kind of that to our, to our service is to add conditions. True humility is without condition. True humility is absent of demands. True humility is free from rules of engagement. If we're going to serve people, we do it because we do it not to be thanked, but we do it because of what Jesus asked us to do, and we recognise it builds good things into our life. And we only have to look at the example of Jesus to see that this was true. He didn't go around healing people or bringing freedom to people to gain affirmation of others. So what did sustain him? When we look at the life of Jesus and his teachings, what were the things that kind of helped him in order to serve others and to not be thanked? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus had a moment of affirmation of God as his father. Early on in the Gospels, these accounts of Jesus, he's baptised as a bit of an example to the people of what it means to turn your life around from your old way towards God. There's a moment where um, there's the audible voice of God that says to Jesus, you are my dear son, I am pleased with you. It's this moment of, of kind of God saying over Jesus, I love you, you're my son, I care about you. And that was the thing that fueled him to love others as well. And Jesus regularly withdrew to be on his own, to spend time with God, to just become increasingly aware of God's love for him. It really was that simple. And I definitely hold to the perspective in my own life. I've seen it and would kind of implore you to consider that the thing that fuels and sustains our humble service of others is the love of God. It's the love of God in us and through us. And perhaps, therefore, it makes it bearable in those ways to not be thanked. Perhaps it's about saying, God, I know you love me and therefore I'm going to do this. I'm going to move myself into a place of humility. 
And so a little bit of homework, some food for thought for you to take away and to consider post some of the things we've covered. There's two books, I'm sure they're available as audio books as well. The first, called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. I read this earlier this year. David Brooks is a New York Times columnist and, and Christian, although the book isn't necessarily a kind of Christian um, book in of itself. And his premise, without spoiling it for you, is basically that these two mountains that can happen in a metaphorical sense in our life. The first is where it's characterised by ego ideals, things we want out of our lives that are just for us. But we find that those things can be futile. We think about a firm foundation, but a life built on your own ego, on your own pride is not a firm foundation at all. And you find yourself maybe down in a bit of a valley. And he says the second mountain is one where actually it's about service towards others, about moving towards others as well. And the second book is Ego is the Enemy. The clue is in the name, if you didn't get that, by Ryan Holiday. In short, he's saying that arrogance, vanity, pride is not our friend. It's not something to be welcomed in. It's not something to be embraced. But how do we grow and move towards humility? How do we build that into our lives? And so a final invitation for all of us in the room. I wonder if you'd stand to join me as we close in a couple of moments and sing some songs. As I had said there, that it's an encounter with the love of God that upholds true and proper service because willpower will only get you so far. Willpower won't spur you on to continue to serve and to give your life for others. That ultimately results in good things, in flourishing, in construction. And so firstly, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, I want to give you an opportunity in a moment to maybe say, you know what, Gareth, I haven't experienced the love of God for quite a while. I haven't experienced um, this comfort that Paul said when we read in that passage in Philippians, he says, if you had any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any tenderness and compassion, perhaps you're saying today as a follower of Jesus, I haven't had that in a while or I need that. God, I need to be reminded of your love for me. And then following that, I wanna make an opportunity for anybody who's not a follower of Jesus, say, yeah, you know what? I wanna say yes to this Jesus. I wanna experience this love that can change things, that can sustain my life. I wanna say yes to a firm foundation for me because the foundations I'm trying to place my life upon, they're not working right now. I need something more trustworthy. So here's what we can do. If you close your eyes, not because it's anything odd, it just helps us to be focused. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the room or you're online watching at home, you can join us as well. And you're saying, yeah, I want to experience the love of God in a fresh way today. I want to be the thing that helps me towards a life of humility. I'd love you to raise your hand. You can do that now. Just put a hand in the air. Thank you. That's great. If you want to know the love of God in a fresh way, and keep that hand up because we want to be able to pray for you, okay? So in a moment, I'm going to ask some people around you just to pray for you and then I'm going to pray a prayer as well. And then we're going to give a chance in a moment as well for those who don't know Jesus. So if you're near somebody with their, with their hand up, maybe you just have to open your eyes, have a little check around, that's fine. Just gather around them. We want to be family here in this space. And we're not there to counsel when we pray for others. We're there just to say, God, would you pour out your love upon this person? God, would you give them a fresh experience of comfort? 
So we're going to do that now and pray for those people. And then to that second group of people, if you're somebody who's saying, yeah, I've never said yes to follow Jesus, we, um, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up in a moment as well, just so our host team can put something into your hands. I want to give you a bit of a booklet to be able to guide you on that and you can come and have a conversation with us. So if there's anybody in the room who you're saying, yeah, I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, would you put a hand in the air? There's no pressure, no expectation, but it'd be right to make an opportunity for that. Right, I'm going to say a prayer over all of us now. And then we're going to go into a time of singing a song as well. And this prayer is from the letter that Paul writes to some Christians in Ephesians about that they would know the love of God. And it says this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, that is God, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. As people are praying, we're going to sing together. So we thank you, God, for what you're doing as we sing now.